You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are starting a new series today called Echoes of Eden. And the focus in this series as we approach Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is how hyperlinked, how often certain themes that started in just the first three chapters of Genesis with the Garden of Eden, how they ripple all the way through the entire narrative of Scripture, all the way to the book of Revelation. And so um, we're going to look at how the tree of life in the garden becomes the tree of the cross at Calvary, and then the tree of life that heals the nations in the book of Revelation. Uh, From uh, the first Adam in the garden to the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And finally, uh, things like the Garden of Eden, how it is transformed into the garden city of Revelation, where heaven and earth are brought together in the perfect marriage feast of the Lamb. So that's kind of our themes today. And we are starting maybe in an odd spot. Instead of an echo of Eden, maybe a repercussion of what happened in Eden, uh, we're starting in the wilderness, in the desert, kind of the anti-Eden today, with the temptation of Jesus Christ. But it's in the desert because the first temptation was in the garden. Okay. Our primary reading is going to be from Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Um, One of the reasons, I guess, we are starting in the wilderness is because of this season in um, what you would call liturgical churches in a lot of different mainline churches. Um, It's a season called Lent. Anyone ever hear of that? Lent for the length. Where did that word come from? It came somehow, probably through Latin, but it's for the lengthening of days as we are in the spring. And it's the 40-day period that started this last Wednesday that runs all the way up until Resurrection Sunday. And during that time, uh, in tradition, many people have set aside a time for uh, reflection, for fasting, for 
a special time of discipline. I found out actually there was a 40-year period in the Jewish calendar uh, in the fall that kind of follows that same idea up to the day of Yom Kippur or Day of Atonement. And so the Christian church kind of moved it for this 40 days of Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, in the anti-creation in a sense. If you look back in Genesis, by the way, you'll find that in chapter 2, God starts in that chapter with a waterless place where no shrub of the field or anything is. It's a dry desert-like environment. It's kind of an inhospitable place. And God then plants a garden, and it's flowing with four different streams coming in, all these beautiful things, and he places Adam in the garden, and then Eve in the garden, all these wonderful things that are going on there. And then we see what happens, right? It kind of all falls apart because an interloper comes in from the wilderness named a serpent, gets into that garden, and tempts and tests Adam and Eve. So today we're looking at kind of the inverse of that in Luke chapter 4. And um, starting there, because we also see how in that inverse, God is reversing the order to bring us his salvation. So from this text, from Luke 4, we're going to look at these three points. The beloved son of God the complexity and strategy of evil, and finally overcoming evil. Now, the beloved Son of God, why do I start there? Because that's where God starts. Okay? That's where it all starts. In the three Gospels that record the um, temptation of Jesus, Mark's like one line, but Matthew and Luke as well, right before the temptation, we have the baptism of Jesus, when God speaks, the Father says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The affirmation from heaven itself that this is my Son, the Son of God. Now, what's fascinating about this verse, by the way, is it's really a compilation. It's hyperlinked to two different passages in the Hebrew Bible. The first is Psalm 2, that Psalm of the Messiah, the king who's going to be on the throne forever, and the nations will roar against him, but they will not defeat him. But also then, linked to it is Psalm um, Isaiah 42. The servant of the Lord, in whom God is well pleased. And so placed on Jesus at his baptism is this role of being a servant king. Oh, don't we need those? Servant leaders. <laughs> no wonder Jesus said later on, you know how the Gentiles work. They lord it over each other, right? Pushing their agenda. Not so with me. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So being the Son of God, that's the big question. What does it mean to be the beloved Son of God? And in this text, that's the debates going on between uh, the devil and Jesus. What does it mean to be the Son of God? Are you going to use your position and your power for yourself or for others? A servant king or the normal? 
We know the normal. We don't really know much about a servant king. What's fascinating is between the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3 and the temptation of Jesus is this long, kind of boring genealogy. You can look it up. Uh, do you know what genealogies are like? Do you guys know your genealogy by any chance? No? You don't care, right? Yeah, you know your parents. That's about it, right? Grandparents. Um, you can do a genealogy pretty far back, uh, Ancestry. You know, they're making money off of it. And it's kind of cool to know some of that stuff, right? It's kind of cool to know that it's like, where did you come from? Um, I don't think I have anyone famous in my genealogy. Not at all. I think my dad got it back to the 1700s in some spots. The only thing that's scary about my genealogy is the fact that the tree doesn't fork much. <laughs> you see, my mom, though she was from Michigan, and my dad from southern Missouri, what we found out is they're from the same area in Germany. Like two towns right next to each other. It's like, oh my gosh. Hopefully it forked enough, right? <laughs> Luke records Jesus' genealogy, and it's a reverse. It starts with Jesus, and it ends here. This is the last line, Luke 3:38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Do you see that? If you are the son of God. Um, now, uh, Carl next week is going to do a lot more with this whole idea of the son of Adam, or Adam being the first, and then Jesus being the last ultimate Adam. But the point is, the role that Jesus had in his baptism is exactly the same role that Adam and Eve were given in the garden. They were to be kings. They were to be authorities. They were to have dominion over this earth, not lording it over this earth, not exploiting this earth, but using the authority that God had given them to serve this wonderful world, to create culture. They were to create a, cultivate the garden. They were to to expand the garden beyond its boundaries into the rest of the world, to make this heaven-on-earth place to represent God to the people, to be the sons and daughters of God with authority, but also servant leaders in that way of all of creation. And they blew it, right? They gave that up. And so now we've got the second, the greatest, another son of God. And the question is, how is he going to define what it means to be son of God? What is it going to be, Jesus? Are you going to use your position as the son of God for your comfort, for your pleasure, for your fame? Are you going to use your power for yourself? That's the question, right? The real temptation and testing of a Christian is really the same. If you are really beloved of God, then don't you have it easy? Don't you get it good? Can you just use whatever you want for yourself? Isn't it all about you? Hmm. If you are the son of God, that is the temptation. And that gets us to our second point which is the complexity and strategy of evil. You know, you might be skeptical of the whole thing. There are people probably, especially at the university, but also in the rest of society that look and say, well, you know, the whole idea of a devil, that's so simplistic. It's actually like 
maybe it's just metaphorical for the maladaptive within humanity, how we are kind of um, still dealing with kind of the animalistic, survivalistic instincts of human beings, and therefore um, we just have to get over our genetic, all that type of stuff. Actually, I think that's the simplistic understanding of evil. That's the simplistic understanding. To think that it's just a biological issue or a genetic issue or a sociological issue. And once we solve the economics <laughs> or the psychological, evil will just disappear. That's worked so well, hasn't it? You know, We're in 2024. We're so much more sophisticated these days. We just know how to blow each other up a lot in many more ways. <laughs> From the Club of Cain, you know, now we've got laser rays. <laughs> Woo, okay. There's something insidious about evil that it just doesn't go away. And you know what's so fascinating, too? I'm reading a book by Reinhold Niebuhr now. Okay, I know, you're going like, what? And in the 1920s, he's writing this book called Moral Man and Immoral Society. And he is putting his finger on the fact that how easy it is for us to kind of consider our own morality. But when we get into a group, all of a sudden, other stuff takes over. And groups are just vicious towards each other. There's something more going on, something you cannot just ascertain into group dynamics or national politics or any of that stuff. If you think that the wickedness you see around us, what's, you might look and go like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these people are doing. But these people, when they're doing it, don't realize what they're doing. Do you understand what, how this, something's going on here? Something more. You know, during World War II, FDR, our president at the time, at the beginning of that war, he believed, and I think most of America at that time and Western civilization at the time believed that human beings are depraved because they were deprived. Have you ever heard that before? You know, well, if we can alleviate poverty, if we can alleviate um, poor education, if we can educate people, if we can uh, supplement people, if we can just make and improve the conditions that human beings will live in, we will be fine, and evil will kind of go away. And so when the first evidences and rumors and information that something terrible was going on in one of the most sophisticated countries of the world called Germany, the Holocaust, everybody couldn't believe it, because how could such a highly educated, highly erudite civilization that produced many great thinkers in this world at that time, how in the world would they be doing something like that? That makes no sense. It doesn't, unless you understand how nuanced and how complex and how deep-rooted evil can be in this world. So later on, it, it turns out that FDR started to talk to um, a pastor <laughs> in upstate New York about how he started to read Soren Kierkegaard and other Christian thinkers on this whole thing of evil because he realized it was much more than economics or psychology or biology. If you think evil is something that can just be controlled or managed, 
you don't understand what's really going on. And what you find in the Bible, even if you have things like demons and devils and stuff like that, is a very nuanced and very, very real understanding of what evil can be. And here's also in our text today, notice how the devil comes to Jesus in the wilderness at a point of vulnerability when his body is physically weakened. And you don't see Luke or Matthew or Mark describing the devil coming as, you know, in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. You don't see uh, the devil coming to Jesus and putting him in a headlock and demanding, trying to get him through power to change his mind about anything. You don't see the devil spewing forth vomit of acid or anything at Jesus to destroy. You don't, that's in those wonderful Marvel movies, but that's not in the Bible at all because evil is very subtle and complex. What you see is the devil coming alongside of Jesus and trying to make an alliance with him. Maybe you've never thought about it, but it's like, hey, Jesus, I see you've got to be hungry by now. Wow, Jesus, you know, here's something good. All the kingdoms of the world, aren't you here to become king of the whole world? Um, you are the son of God. If you are, just prove it. I mean, show everybody who you really are in a fancy schmancy way. Isn't that basically also what the serpent does in the garden? Trying to make an alliance with Eve and Adam. Hey, he says so subtly, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that fascinating? And what does he offer? He offers good things to them. Oh, no. If you eat from this tree, you're going to gain wisdom. You're going to become like God. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what God wants for you? Evil is very subtle. As in Genesis 3, it says, When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, it was beautiful, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Aren't all those good things? This is what you have to understand. We all need to understand. I've got to remind myself again and again about temptations or testings that come to me are not terrible things. They're the good things that I want to get by an, a bad means. Do you get it? Oh, here's the shortcut, Jesus. Just take these stones and make them bread. What's the big deal? You got the power? Oh, you want wisdom? Just grab it for yourself. It's right there. T.S. Eliot said it this way. He said, most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. You know, in other words, we want something good, we see something good, but we're trying to get it by a bad method. Good things by bad means. That's what's going on with Jesus. Is Jesus going to get what he wants, use his power for himself? 
Is that what it means to be a true son of God? Is to take his position and use it for himself? And Jesus says, no. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He does not ever, and you will find this, if you read through all the gospel accounts, every story of Jesus, you never see him using his power to entertain, to thrill for his own amusement, or even just for his own benefit. He never used, the miracles he does, you know, he doesn't go, hey, disciples, come over here. You see that tree on that hill over there? You know, lightning strike. No, he doesn't do that. Watch me, you know, like hold my wine. Take a look at what I'm going to do. You know, sorry, that's kind of the old, the, the first century version of hold my beer. <laughs> You know, we do that, right? I'm sorry, you're going like, what? You've never heard a pastor say that in a sermon before, have you ever? Okay. <laughs> but, but, but he doesn't use it for himself because he defines being the son of God as being a servant king, using all his authority for the sake of others. And oh, Lord, have mercy, we need that. In any form of real leadership, I get to teach leadership at the university, and I, you know, you might go like, I love teaching it because who's the best leader I know? I might not use his name in class, but I'm always saying he's the model, he's the one. You want to truly be a leader, you better be a servant leader. You better have his characteristics. You better... Lead for the sake of others, not for the sake of self. This is how far we have devolved in our society right now. In my opinion, it's worse than it. Maybe it's always been, but we haven't been so blatant about it. But most leaders today in our society don't even <laughs> fake trying to do it for others. They are telling you up front they're only doing it for themselves. And you might benefit from their rise, but really, they're just leading for themselves. So what Jesus is getting at, what we face in life, is the subtlety of evil. Good things acquired through wrong means. Now, here's the stark way of saying it, but it's absolutely true. Any good thing in your life can become the problem if that good thing takes the place of God in your life. Any good thing that becomes more important than God in your life will become demonic in your life. It'll become a demonic force in your life, and you will face chaos and destruction as a result if you keep pursuing it. Adam and Eve basically aligned themselves with the devil who was just trying to um, get them over by taking the good things and desiring them quick, fast, easy, rather than just asking God. I don't understand it truly. Maybe, I mean, why didn't Eve just say, hey, let me ask God for a moment about this? <laughs> they already were, by the way, in the image of God. Did you realize that? He said, oh, you are going to become like God if you get this. No, they already were like God. They didn't need any. This was an empty promise. But all he was dangling was the good stuff in front of them. 
They didn't want to be like God. They already were. They wanted to become God and take God's place. And that's what happens so often. Don't expect evil to come at you, obviously. It's always indirect and subtle. Now, and this is a sad thing, and I, 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 it's going to sound a little harsh, um, and, uh, and understand if I've met people that really are struggling with this, college students as well as others throughout ministry. Um, but I'm going to share this anyways. Um, you know, there are people that will come to me um, on the campus or over the last couple decades and say, well, I used to believe in God, but, and I used to go to church, but <laughs> when this happened, you know, when I prayed and prayed and prayed over this and God didn't give me what I, need, I, I expected and you name it, you know, my child died, my marriage ended, my business went bankrupt, whatever. I, well, I just can't believe in him anymore because he didn't answer my prayer. And um, if you're going to counsel people like that, listen, pray with them help them understand, but you know what's really going on in those situations? They're really saying, um, well, this thing, this was more important than anything, and God was my means to get it, and since God didn't give it to me, I stopped using God as the means. When God becomes your way to get something else, that's the issue. And that's exactly what the devil is doing with Jesus, trying to get the kingdom, trying to get the fame, trying to get a following, trying to get his own physical sustenance by a different means than trusting in God. Did you ever think that when God doesn't answer a prayer that you've prayed so hard for, that maybe he's not answering it precisely because he's trying to strip you from the idolatry over that thing? Do you get it? That thing may have been too important to you. And don't think that we're all, we all fall for this. <laughs> I have fallen for it hundreds of times over. There have been so many times I prayed for and wanted. You know, my wife has always said, hey, John, you want to make money in this? Uh, Tele-evangelism is the way to go. But the whole idea is you could see even pastors fall into this when they are looking for the size of their flock, the influence of their ministry, all these things we think, and they are good things. But they take the place of God. That is problematic. And I praise God when he has stripped me from those types of things time and again including my sincerity and how pious, I, all that stuff. All of those things are out of the way. The only God is God. It's ironic. The devil goes right to Jesus, <laughs> and it's almost an accusation. It's very subtle. It's very passive. If you are the son of God, notice what he's doing there. And, and I think that's, the subtle accusation you face too, if you're really a daughter of God, if you are really a child of God, if you are a son of God, if you are one of God's, well then, this should go on in your life. It's supposed to be filled with blessings and positive things all the time and everything going well. You should have the good life all the time because you're God's son. What does it mean? God doesn't care about you? 
Or even worse, maybe you really aren't a son of God. Have you ever had those kind of thoughts going in your mind? It's kind of like, how could you be considered a Christian? If you did that, if you went through that, if you... And this is so fascinating. There's two different words in the, in, um, in the New Testament we use often for, um, or in the Bible, diabolos, which is the Greek word for devil, and satan, which is actually the accuser. I know I don't have a slide on this. Don't worry. <laughs> for a change, I don't have any Greek or words, okay? But um, the devil means to tempt, to test, to coax, and Satan means to accuse. And he loves that whiplash. He loves that whiplash back and forth, you know? Hey, doesn't this look good? Once you do it, how can you call yourself a Christian? He tempts you to do it and then blames you for doing it. And he'll play that back and forth. He was doing that with Jesus as well. If you're really the son of God, prove it. So how do we overcome this? Because I think we've all faced this many times, right? How do we overcome this evil? Notice what Jesus does here. In the Gospel of Matthew, as well as the Gospel of Luke, when the three temptations come to him, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, okay, God, legion of angels, fight him off. Okay, God, let's you know, power up and take him out, that would have played into the devil's hand as well. He did not use his power directly. He does what you can do as well. The only thing that really is necessary, and that is, he says, it is written. It is written. He quotes scripture. All he has to do, one little word, is more powerful when it's God's word than any of the wiles and temptations and anything else that the devil can throw at you. One little word will fell him. As the word, a mighty fortress, the hymn says. He defeats the devil not by force. And this isn't a magic formula. It is written in kind of quoting an incantation or a Bible passage at back. You know, all the movies with, from vampires with crosses and garlic, all that stuff. You know, the Bible is not a magic book. You just hold that up and the devil runs or something. And you don't just quote a passage. It is a fact that Jesus staked his life on the written word of God himself. He was under the word of God. He lived out the word of God. He trusted the God who spoke and the God who gave. And that is what you can do from the, his baptism on. He knows he is the son of God. There is no question about that. No matter what he goes through, he is God's son. And he is the servant who is going to do everything for you. And when Jesus faces the agony of that sacrifice... When he faces the ultimate tests, do you realize <laughs> it's no coincidence that on the cross, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he has both the thieves on both sides of him accusing him of things like the Satan, as well as the religious leaders and the centurions and everyone else accusing him, saying, if you are the son of God, 
Save yourself and us. Or if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Prove it. It's the same temptations. That's the temptations we all face. And Jesus is hanging on the cross, quoting Scripture and saying, I am the Son of God, and that's why I'm staying right here for you. You can insult me. You can accuse me. You can deny me. You can run away from me. You can hate me. Bring it on. I'm here for you. Even when you're against me, I am for you. Isn't that amazing? That is your God. The one who, even when you are against him, when you have been running away from him, when you have fallen, when you've broken things, when you are Adam or Eve or anyone in the Bible, there's only one hero, and that is Jesus. And when you're any of those things, he still says, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm doing all this for you. So yes, we too are in a wilderness. You can use it somewhat metaphorically. A place that is, seems to be pretty chaos, inhospitable to human life. I think even in the, we're dealing with a world that's kind of broken down, and a lot of the things that should be knit together aren't there right now. But just like Adam and Eve in the garden, you are God's child. He will provide for you. Trust him. You don't have to. Take it by any means you can. And thankfully, what Jesus does here in this text is not simply show you the model of how to face temptation. He faces it for you. And this is not just the present reality that we're in the midst of a temptation and in the midst of a wilderness. This is also pointing us to the future. A future when all these temptations are taken away. A future because Jesus overcame, you will be an overcomer. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his book, Life Together. He writes, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end of his disciples, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. Just think of that. That's why he came. That's why he came. And the way he defeats the devil is not through force, but through sacrifice. Not, th- not, not by, um, just by love. Love defeats. The sacrificial love of God accomplishes it. And so he will say, As Bonhoeffer says, so the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. You know, it'd be a lot easier if we could just kind of hide from temptations. (laughs) They'll find you no matter where you are. I went to a Christian school. Temptation was in the classroom as well. It was there, right? In church, temptations are there. In a Christian college, they're there. They're everywhere. You can't get away from it. You know, fight. No. Flight? No. Stand in the word of God and what he has to say. The world is not going to be overcome by fight or flight, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. So Eden still echoes, I think, today, don't you? 
I think there are so many little ripple effects, and I think it, you can meditate on the first three chapters of Genesis and how, like, the New Testament kind of reverses the odor from the wilderness now into a paradise through Jesus Christ. You can meditate that and just understand how archetypal, how um, beyond just the history, it is history, but it's also a a meta-narrative, a real story to identify with and understand the rest of our lives. It starts to put everything else together. It's not that I understand the scriptures, but through the scriptures I understand me and my place in this world and where God is leading. And so we find the echoes of Eden today and through Jesus Christ, we're going to be in that paradise with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, there are so many temptations and trials that we face these days. And you know our world and how it just feels less paradisical every day in so many ways. How we have um, really harmed your creation, Lord. We've exploited, we've treated um, our status as an entitlement rather than a service. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us more to serve one another to glorify you with our lives, to use whatever we have um, in response to Jesus and his sacrificial love. Lord, there are people in our church right now who are not with us in body, but in spirit. Lord, today we pray for Dick and Mike as they uh, face um, uh, struggles with their health. With Tom as well, Lord, we pray your healing hand on these, your servants. We lift up to you, Joan Beverly, and the family as Bob has passed away this week. We pray, Lord, you would comfort them all. We thank you for Bob's ministry among us here and how he was so, had such a heart for the college students in so many ways when he could. We thank you now that his battle with all sorts of physical ailments is now over. He now no longer suffers, but is in your glory. We pray now for Joan and others and for us, Lord, who grieve over this loss. <sighs> we pray, Lord, that your comfort would come, a peace that passes all human understanding. May we learn and, uh, and, and see in Bob a model of the Christian life of someone who trusted you completely and served others implicitly. Um, we lift up, Lord, our um, campus ministry and the mission trip to uh, Guatemala in just less than two weeks. We pray your protection and peace upon the students and others who are going. We thank you, Lord, for the support they've received. We pray that you would uh, truly bless them in that week and bring them back rejoicing, Lord, to share with us just what you have accomplished. We lift up, Lord, um, our ministry in general on the campus as well as in this community. We thank you for the opportunities that are present for us, for the beginning dialogue uh, with the university and how we might partner together in, on the development of the land that you've given us. We pray, Lord God, that you would be guiding and directing all of these things. And Lord, today we've all stand convicted of how we have failed. If we say we have no sin, we, we wouldn't be fooling you. We'd just be deceiving ourselves, and your truth would not be in us. But we love your promise, Lord, in 1 John, 
that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We hold on to that because it is written and it is true. And therefore, Lord, we offer to you ourselves, our brokenness, everything that's going on in our lives. We ask that you would bring your forgiveness and grace to us. And as we come uh, to the Lord's Supper today, that you'd open up our hearts and lives to receive all that you have for us, knowing that you are the God who gives, the God who loves, the God who forgives, the God who empowers and fills with your spirit, the God who is present in our life as we have seen and heard about Jesus and how he served and gave his life as a ransom for many. Bless our offerings as well, Lord, this day, that they'd be used for your glory and your kingdom's sake. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.